Good evening, thank you very much for having me. For those of you who haven't heard of me, I'm the secret barrister. I'm a criminal barrister and author who has for the past few years clogged up Twitter, blogs, newspaper columns and a couple of books with my thoughts on the justice system. I started blogging in 2015 about the things I witnessed each day prosecuting and defending in the criminal courts because I could not quite believe the disconnect that had been allowed to grow between the justice system and the people who own it. Every day, I was seeing an underfunded, breaking criminal justice system, routinely failing the people who depend on it. But whenever I spoke to anybody outside the legal profession, they were completely unaware of that reality. I'd grown sick and tired of having to tell witnesses and victims of crime that, once again, the courts did not have space to hold the trial that they had waited two years for, and that they would be required to attend again in a year's time. I was fed up of seeing human beings at the most vulnerable points in their lives being treated as nothing more than numbers on a spreadsheet, their suffering of no interest to our lawmakers as long as the public were kept in the dark about what was happening to their justice system. And as I began to write, I started to become quite evangelical about breaking down this barrier. People deserve to know the truth about their justice system. They deserve to know where the real problems lie so that they can hold their democratically elected politicians to account. They also deserve to know when they're being lied to, when somebody in power is trying to mislead the public about what the problems actually are. Too often, we've seen politicians and the media exploit the public's lack of familiarity with the justice system to peddle lies that serve the agenda of the powerful, lies that distract from the true issues in the justice system, lies which have, on occasion, convinced citizens not only to agree with, but to actively campaign for the removal of their own rights. This knowledge gap is something that I set out to try and address in my first two books called Stories of the Law and How It's Broken and Fake Law. I wanted to show people the stories that weren't making the headlines and to help counter some of the misinformation that we're fed. But with my third book, Nothing But The Truth, I want to try something a little different. One of the stark dividing lines that I noticed before I became a lawyer and which has been confirmed over my decade of practice, is between what lawyers think about justice and what it means to the general public. In particular, questions such as whether our criminal justice system is too soft on criminals, whether there are too many convicted people avoiding prison, whether we need more bobbies on the beat and longer sentences for those found guilty. There tends to be a bright divide in attitudes. And I am in the, I think, somewhat unusual position of having crossed that divide because before I became a criminal barrister, my views on criminal justice were much more aligned with what polls suggested the majority views of the public. I thought we had a system that cared too much about criminals and not enough about victims. Judges who stuck two fingers up at the notion of personal responsibility and a legal aid system which threw bucket loads of taxpayers' cash at lawyers to game the system in service of dangerous foreign offenders. But the things I saw and heard on my way to becoming a criminal barrister changed me, virtually beyond recognition. 
There was no Damascene moment, no single client or case that sent scales falling from my eyes, nothing of that sort. But somewhere in my own messy conversion lies, I think, some of the answers as to why we have this apparent gulf in values between the system and the public. And the one thing of which I'm truly certain is that I was wrong to ever be certain. Justice is too complex for that. So what I'm going to talk about now are some extracts from the new book. It charts my progress from angry law students some time ago now to marginally less angry practicing criminal barrister. And I hope it at least sparks some questions, even if, as I've admitted, I, I can't really promise any answers. You might think that having spent at least four years studying and accruing debts up to £100,000, and after squeezing into the 2% of law graduates who nailed down a pupillage, you'd have earned a measure of job security. Alas, pupillage is but the eliminator in the spandexless version of gladiators that passes for barristerial qualification. For the next 12 months, you are the subject of a 24-7 job interview in which not just a panel, but all of your prospective colleagues will be scrutinizing your every move before voting on whether you should be offered tenancy, a permanent position as a self-employed member of chambers. Some pupillages, mainly outside London, are rewarded with a view to tenancy, meaning that as long as you demonstrate a base level of competence and avoid disgracing yourself in a social media or sex scandal, you are likely to be okay. But many chambers recruit several pupils intending to offer at most one tenancy, pitting contestants against each other in a brown nosing race to the bottom, which we prefer to think of as a virtuous meritocracy. Pupillage is split into a first six and a second six. For the first six months, you shadow you, your allocated pupil supervisor or supervisors, learning by watching them in court, carrying out research, drafting documents. You subsist on your pupillage award paid by Chambers. In my day, that was a thousand pounds a month. Your second six is when you're on your feet. You're technically employed in your own right, appearing in court by yourself and doing and billing your own cases, albeit under the supposedly watchful eye of your supervisor. The headline is that around a third of pupils don't receive tenancy offers at the end of the year leaving them either scrambling for the life raft of a third six pupillage, that is another six months of learning on the job, or bidding adieu to their abortive career at the independent bar. My immersion into this lobster pot coincided roughly with the start of the reduction in public spending that followed the 2008 global financial crash. There'd been a long running battle between the bar and the Labour government over fee reductions and the structure of the criminal legal profession, although my understanding of the detail was at this point limited. But having voted conservative for most of my enfranchised life and being sympathetic to the conservative Liberal Democrat coalition government, I did not need much persuading of the need to tighten belts and rein in spending. Moreover, I thought justice's purest expression was punishment. And I was looking forward to the professional challenge of both defending and prosecuting the bad bastards with Swiss neutrality, still wholly unburdened by any deeper sense of mission. And of course, and I cannot overstate the importance of this, 
I was looking forward to the rich seam of fascinating, gory anecdotes primed to be mined should I ever be invited to a dinner party. My pupil supervisor for the year was Alan. Directness was very much Alan's hallmark. There was no malice. He simply considered life too short for niceties. Does being ugly make this job harder? He once asked a male opponent in court. It wasn't intended as cruel. He was just genuinely curious. Alan's skin was rhinocerine, an evolutionary product of having been a working class man at the bar in an era when such social status was not only vanishingly rare, but rendered him fair game for overt snobbery and mockery among practitioners and judges alike on account of his accent, his appearance, and his lack of approved legal breeding. Not having a blood relative sitting at the High Court was even more of a hindrance to career advancements in the 1980s and 90s than it is today. And no doubt there was a greasy streak of jealousy among the landed gentry that Alan had forced his way into the profession without the leg up on which so many of them had relied. One of Alan's greatest pearls of wisdom formed part of a motivational introduction. You are the least important person in this building. Remember that. You are the last person the clerks want to have to think about and the last person whose opinion matters. Keep that in mind and you won't go far wrong. It's a popular misconception that the job of a defence barrister is to dream up preposterous defences for admittedly guilty clients. Your overriding duty as a barrister, the closest we have to a Hippocratic Oath, is not to mislead the court. So if a defendant tells you that he's guilty, you cannot positively assert the opposite. If you have a client who, having admitted his guilt to you, insists that he still wants to run a trial, then you can continue to represent him, but you're extremely limited in what you can say to a jury. You can put the prosecution to proof pointing out the holes or inconsistencies and reminding the jury that they must be sure of guilt before they can convict, but you can't positively suggest that your client is not guilty. It's exceedingly rare. This all means that far from my own teenage understanding of the role of a defense lawyer, much of your time is spent advising clients on the strength of the case against them and of the merits of pleading guilty. And again, not what I expected from TV. It transpires that many defendants will willingly and sensibly throw in their hand when they receive the benefit of robust legal advice. My first day in court as a pupil was as terrifying as any day I've gone on to have in practice. And the closer I watched and listened to my colleagues to be in action, the greater swelled the feeling of dread. Fluent eloquence under pressure is one of those, eh, how hard can it be, skills that looks eminently replicable until you attempt it yourself, like hooking a plastic duck at a carnival or digging a shallow grave. The confident poise with which the advocates make their submissions, sparring with not an um, uh, or, you know, in sight, gracefully leaping into the air like loquacious fish, to catch judicial barbs in their mouths and politely spit them back out again. These are things that the version of me in my head was a natural at, but as I learned, the real version is not. The idea that I would be able to slot into this tableau in 26 weeks 
would have been laughable were it not spectacularly, deathly, unfunny. And it isn't just the verbal dexterity, it's the language. The idiosyncratic mode of courtroom address, which she was summarily trained for at bar school, but which bears little resemblance to match day, all the may it please your honours and in my respectful submissions and my learned friends, combined with the indecipherable choreography of barristers seemingly standing and sitting back down again at random, renders a court hearing at best alienating, at worst completely impossible for anybody not versed in Barlingo to follow what the hell is going on. Throw in the shorthand, the industry acronyms, the in-jokes, the very particular style of wry humour that is permissible, but only with certain judges, and only if you have the experience to pull it off. And you have a spectacle which all the actors understand, but which is wholly incomprehensible to the audience, like performing Brecht to a room full of Dachshunds. And this is a problem. It's something which you quickly forget once you're doing it, but courts are by their very nature public forums for the administration of justice. What we do matters to society at large, not just the lawyers in the case. It's essential that somebody stepping into the public gallery and not least the person in the dock whose fate is being discussed can understand what is being played out before them. As criminal advocates, we are mostly aware of this when addressing juries or advising clients, when we cleanse our speech of jargon and reach for hammy pop culture references to clumsily illustrate our points. But when it's just advocates and the judge talking, it can quickly revert to a lawyer's private affair where the lights metaphorically dim and we only have eyes for each other. At such times, a member of the public watching from beyond the perimeter, whether a curious stranger or the defendant in the dock whose liberty is being deliberated by wigged heads speaking in foreign tongues, must find it hard to feel much kinship with our justice system. That feeling of otherness, which I know that most of us feel when starting out, is one which I think we would probably do well to remember instead of, as I know I was guilty of early on, striving to join the natives in their impenetrable legal culture and leaving the public behind. Thank you.